Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, so we should take a breath and pause and exercise our options and not be forced or think that we're forced to act rashly and in ways that undermine our our agency or self-sufficiency. This morning, we are going to start off with uh, a rebroadcast of an interview with Alma Robinson, Executive Director of California Lawyers for the Arts, and she basically shares with us some of the work that her organization has been doing uh, more recently, and also she talks about the upcoming uh, conference uh, for Arts and Corrections, which is happening at the end of June at Santa Clara University. Um, what else is going on? We are then going to be joined in the studio. Uh, tonight is opening night for SF Indies documentary, San Francisco Documentary Film Festival, and it's in its 18th year, and it starts tonight, May 29th, and it continues through June 13th at the Roxy and Brava Theaters and the The tagline is, because sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And we are so excited to have in the studio the director and uh, principal uh, star of the film Circles, which uh, is the story of Eric Butler, a Hurricane Katrina survivor and pioneer of the restorative justice movement. And so we're going to talk about the uh, the film and... uh, and the director, uh, Cassidy Freeman, is going to be joining us. And uh, the film is actually going to be screening um, this Saturday, uh, June 1st at 2.30 at the Roxy Theater. And it's going to have a second screening uh, later on uh, in uh, the festival, um, Monday, June 3rd at 9 p.m. And I'm sure at both screenings, at least, I know the first one, but maybe both the director and uh, the people that are in the film, because it's about a, a, a local school and a family that lives here. Um, yeah, they might also be present at both screenings, so that's always ex- exciting. And then we're going to conclude with uh, a rebroadcast of uh, the founder, Andrew Woods, uh, who is the uh, director and founder of the San Francisco International Arts Festival, which is wrapping up a wonderful two-week run this week, and you don't want to miss some of the um, uh, some of the performances or panels or workshops. So I'm going to rebroadcast that uh, at the end of the show. So um, yeah, so stay tuned. Um, hold on to your seat. Oh, and also um, at the uh, Museum of the African Diaspora. It's going to be a wonderful author talk tomorrow. Um, Cheryl Finley is going to be talking about about her book, um, and uh, she's going to be in conversation. I think I think it starts at six thirty uh, at Moed, and uh, her book looks at the uh, uh, the iconogram um, of the slave ship. Um, 
the cross section of the slave ship and how that uh, that particular image has been uh, has sort of imprinted itself on on our psyche and and what it means and it's a really wonderful book I haven't finished it yet so I'm really excited about about going to hear her uh, talk about it and uh, yeah so that's that's tomorrow evening at the Museum of the African Diaspora. Alrighty, so let's start with Alma Robinson, and then we will be joined in the studio live um, by the director um, and uh, and principal of um, of Circles, uh, and that is Cassidy Friedman and Eric Butler. Okay, you like this better? Uh, yeah, this one. This is clear. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. All righty, super. Yeah, so I was just saying that it's um it's really awesome that, you know, we are finally um having um this conversation because, you know, I see you everywhere. Um you know, um I see you at San Quentin, um I see you at you know, all of the um arts programs where we're looking at people that are affected by the um or justice system impacted or mm-hmm. you know, sort of connected to the carceral system. Uh, you know, with a big smile and your hat, <laughs> and and yeah, and and usually when when we look at the program, there's some funding from California lawyers for the arts, and um, yeah, it's just really wonderful. And so, I really really appreciate um, your short bio, and and certainly um, you can augment it with other information because um, wow, you your organization is just so powerful, and you've really um, as you mentioned in the first line, expanded the organization in 1987 in in so many different ways. So um, for our audience, uh, Alma Robinson is Executive Director of California Lawyers for the Arts. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you expanded the organization into a statewide agency with staff in San Francisco, Berkeley, Sacramento, Los Angeles, and San Diego. Uh, programs that you oversee include legal services, alternative dispute resolution, and educational programs that provide training in legal and business issues for artists and arts organizations. You have also led several successful statewide initiatives, including Arts and Environmental Dialogue and Symposia on California Arts and Healthy Communities. In 2011, you began uh, CLA's Successful Arts and Corrections Initiative in collaboration with the William James Association to restore funding for California arts programs in prisons, which had been defunded in 2003. With support from the Art for Justice Fund, you produce a series of six Art for Justice forums, which I hope we can talk about uh, in detail, with conveners in Michigan, Texas, Alabama, Georgia, California, and New York in 2018, and I was able to attend the convening in uh, California, which is held in Sacramento. While concluding a three-year project funded by the NEA that is demonstrating the benefits of arts programs in county jails throughout California. Want to hear about that, too. (laughs) CLA's third conference on arts and corrections will be presented in June 2019 at Santa Clara University. I want you to talk about that, too. <laughs> um, yeah, and you are a graduate of Middlebury uh, College 
and Stanford Law School. Where is uh, Middlebury uh, College? It's in Vermont. Oh. Vermont. Oh, okay, okay. And how I got there from North Carolina is sort of unbelievable, but I got a letter from the college, and I was at that point looking for uh, opportunities to study French, and they had a great French program, and I didn't end up majoring in French, but I enjoyed living in the French chateau and and, uh, learning how to speak French, but I ended up as a history major, which I'm really um, proud of because when you look at everything that's happening through a historical lens, mm-hmm. you realize that we are just here temporarily, and we can just try to do our best. But maybe we can't fix the American empire. Empires rise and fall, and this is the nature of historical evolution. I'm just hoping that we can help to sustain the planet for future generations because I think that's our most critical challenge facing us and species on this planet with some stewardship responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, so so you're a Southerner? I am. I'm from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Oh, wow, wow. Yeah, and now you live here in the, uh, on the West Coast, and you're just doing so many wonderful programs around arts and art for social change. And I'm just wondering um, – sort of how you came to California Lawyers for the Arts, because you could have litigated and and did your work in a whole lot of other worthy uh, and important areas of law, of jurisprudence, Um, but you chose this particular um, uh, focus and this particular um, way to, to, I guess, to create a, a more just society. Well, thank you, Wanda. I appreciate that. Um, and thank you so much for having me on your show. I took art and the law when I was in law school at Stanford. It was a new concept then, and our teacher, John Merriman, was really breaking ground. It was an interdisciplinary course between law students and art history majors. And we discovered um, all sorts of interesting areas of law. Um, including intellectual property, uh, cultural preservation, repatriation of art was a big issue then. This was in the early 70s. And it was natural for me to wander into what was in Bay Area Lawyers for the Arts and ask for an internship after I finished law school. And many uh, law students find their way to careers through internships with nonprofit organizations, advocacy groups, and uh, as an alternative to working at law firms. So I was an intern at Bay Area Lawyers for the Arts, and a couple of years later, I was um, looking at our law school placement um, uh, resources and discovered that there was a job available with the organization developing what was then a pilot program in alternative dispute resolution for artists. And fortunately, I was hired for that job. It was part-time. And I set up the rules and procedures, the first training program, and away we went. Uh, We became a national model by um, helping organizations around the country replicate our program. And so uh, in New York City, for example, Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts still maintain 
a mediation program that's very active that was developed um, as a replication of our program. They still have mediation trainings every year. And um, some other organizations also created programs, but they haven't been able to sustain them. But I'm really happy that the group in New York did sustain the program because artists often have problems that take place in other states. So we have collaborated, for example, on cases where an artist might have sent a piece to a gallery in New York, never got it back, never got paid for it. And so it's very hard to um, demand payment or threaten litigation if you're in another state. It's really hard to get legal representation, but we've been able to work successfully with Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts to resolve some of these kinds of interstate cases. So that was actually my first foray into working uh, across state lines, and uh, it was a successful program in our organization as well because it helped us develop our first office in Los Angeles and in Sacramento, and those programs are still thriving with county support for the mediation program. Mm -hmm. um, so that was that was how I became involved with Bayer Lawyers for the Arts, and then it grew, as you mentioned earlier, into a statewide organization. It's been a very satisfying career, actually. Mm. Yeah, well, you, you, you're always smiling. So it must be a great match because, you know, when a person is happy, <laughs> you know, with their career choice, I mean, you are always happy looking when I see you, like, and, and I, and it's, it's like, I, I know it's for real, you know, and, and it's just great to see someone that, I mean, you're just doing so much great work. And it's so interesting, you know, that law and corrections are, um, you know, overlap, you know, within your, your, um, uh, your career um and in a, in a way that is is making it possible for people to um uh to get healed um from you know a lot of a lot of traumas that are caused by you know sort of the social engineering of of this uh democracy which is not um a place you know America is not a place where everyone has access to um all of you know the uh I guess they're their rights, you know, as citizens or as residents. And and so, you know, sometimes um the system, you know, the the legal system is a place where people get tangled and caught up, you know, to a certain degree. And and then the way that your organization sort of works um to with in concert with these other other institutions, um it's just really amazing to look at. I mean, it just sort of looks, sort of shows how, um, you know, as as a, a person who has, you know, um, knowledge and expertise in jurisprudence, you know, you're also good in negotiation. <laughs> yeah. I like to think that that comes out of my own mediation training and experience and practice. And mm -hmm. um, we've had a lot of great collaborative relationships with um, William James Association, for example, we mm -hmm. teamed up in 2011. We went to state hearings together in the at the Capitol on public safety and made the case for why arts programs needed to be funded through their rehabilitation services. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, at that time, the state corrections department was under the jurisdiction of the federal courts 
and they had to figure out how to reduce the uh, terrible uh, overcrowdedness of our state prisons. And so the state legislature was looking at basically three options. Are we going to build more state prisons in California or ship more people out of state to other states that have capacity, either through public or private prisons? Or are we going to try to help people through rehabilitation and reduce the number of people who are incarcerated in the state prison system? Fortunately, they went for the third option. They decided to invest a lot more money in rehabilitation programs, and we were able to get a slice of that funding initially as a pilot project for two years, um, $2.5 million program that placed artists in 20 prisons. The success of that led to a much larger state contract. It's now $8 million a year for mm -hmm. arts programs in all 35 state institutions. And we are really, um, really excited about the results. Um, more people are coming out and not going back. And I wish we had a better way to document the success of our programs by reducing recidivism. But even for people who remain incarcerated, their lives are so much better. They are, are not looking for uh, conflicts. They are looking to get back into the studio and finish that piece of art that they're working on or get back into the um, drama um, class with Shakespeare, with Marin Shakespeare Company, or really uh, up to 17 organizations around the state have contracts to do arts programs. But folks are thinking about how they're working effectively with people rather than how to beat them in the next counterpunch or whatever argument might be going on in the yard. So it has really affected the environment of prisons around the state, and that's a great thing to be part of. Mm, right, yeah. And I was looking at um, – I guess around that, that time in 2014, um, Dr. Brewster, um, had a report that is, um, you know, is cited, um, looking at, um, pre and post surveys of participants in arts programs at the California Rehabilitation Center in Norco, uh, and Soledad, New Folsom and San Quentin State Prisons. And, um, yeah, that, that particular study uh, looks like it was pretty significant, and and then I was thinking about a conversation that I had recently with uh, Lee Jokey, Leah Jokey, um, who has the um, uh, the theater program at Lancaster um, State Prison, which I think is um, the oldest um, theater program in the California um, prison system. I think she started that when she was a correctional officer, actually. I'm not sure, but um, I do want to go back to what you said about Dr. Brewster. He is just unbelievable. He's a professor at the University of San Francisco, and he's made it his life's work mm. to um, study various issues involving corrections and the arts, starting mm -hmm. with a study I believe he did in 1987 that showed that people who were in arts programs had fewer disciplinary incidents and therefore saved, the arts programs were saving the state money mm. because discipline is expensive. Um, you have to uh, get a crew together to take the 
prisoner to a facility where they have a hearing and there are people that administer the hearings and so forth. So he calculated all of these really dollars and cents um, costs of discipline and that was an incredible piece of work. And then in 2012, when we were working with the William James Association, we teamed up with him to design this study that you referred to, which we call the Demonstration Project. We raised money from private foundations mm -hmm. and got the approval of the uh, California uh, Corrections and Rehabilitation Department to uh, do this study in several state prisons that you mentioned, and the results of that um, demonstration project inspired them to then fund the pilot project and and um, in more state prisons. We continue to do some evaluation, and uh, now, we, as you mentioned earlier, we have a similar project in county jail, which, um, excuse me a second. We've had a similar project in county jails, and we are urging the state to fund arts programs in county jails for the same reasons, that it improves people's behavior, their attitudes, their communication skills, and their interest in learning, which is really significant, because a lot of people who were incarcerated often didn't have the best educational opportunities. They struggled in school. A lot of them dropped out and didn't finish high school, struggled to read, and, and uh, were not encouraged. So through the arts, they have a window into uh, an opportunity to learn things they never thought they could try and, and to become a, do, a new person that can make a contribution to themselves, for their families, for their communities and for whatever environment they're in. So it's it's very exciting to see people have this change and to to watch their growth and and um to be part of that. I can't imagine anything more exciting in terms of of work and having had um some kind of impact. Right. Yeah. Tell can you tell our audience who might not be familiar with the um uh, the William James Association, because um, they are, it's a private um, a foundation, and and whenever you see any programs, or, you know, that are have any longevity in, in uh, the arts and corrections, um, William James is right there, you know, multiple-year funding. Yes, and they hung in during the drought. We call it the drought. <laughs> Between 2003, when the California Arts Council funding was really decimated um, almost to zero by the state legislature. Mind you, it had been something like $33 million, and then it went to $1 million from the state general fund. Um, and then slowly started to creep up. But during those years, William James Association, which is managed by um, Lori Brooks, who's a good friend and colleague um, of mine and of California Lords of the Arts, um, continued to send volunteers into state prisons to work with correctional officers. And at that point, they had facilitators in various prisons who would um, help organize and set up 
um, event space and classroom space for arts programs. Um, that also was eliminated by 2010, I believe, and in 2011, when we started working with William James, that was one of the, the things that we really wanted to resurrect, but it still hasn't come back. We still don't have those arts facilitators inside the prisons, which makes it somewhat difficult to negotiate over and over with the correctional officers and, you know, each prison is different and um, there's not a system-wide um, support system for arts programs. Nevertheless, we persist, mm -hmm. and we uh, have been able to uh, see the astounding growth of these programs in the state prisons. And that was one of the reasons that we started having these national conferences mm -hmm. in 2015. The first one was at University of San Francisco, because we thought, wow, there's a really important opportunity, but also a need to get more people trained by master artists and others about how to do this work, how to run a program, how to sustain the relationships with the prison system, with the Department of Corrections, with the State Arts Council. And so we've been successful in having two conferences, and the third one is coming up. June 24th at Santa Clara University. Right, yeah. So do you want to um, uh, take this opportunity to talk about the conference, since we're talking about the conference? <laughs> sure. and, then, and then we can go back and, and talk about um, these Art for Justice forums that you hosted. And also want you to save some time to uh, talk about these publications that um, California Lawyers for the Arts has produced particularly this one that looks really interesting, um, Judging in a Rapidly Changing World. Um, uh, and uh, this was, a, um, this was a, I guess, a conference, but, but I think a publication came out of it, right? Uh, time Out. That's not our publication. I'm oh, not it's not sure yours. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. Cause I was, um, yeah. Okay, yeah, it was um, – one of these uh, links that um, that you all sent me <laughs> to to uh, study up on. Um, Is that a link from our website? I'm not sure what you're referring to. Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it says right here a guidebook. Uh, the, let's see, um, no, that's that's for the county jails project report. There was a guidebook that came out, and and then. Um, <clears throat> Judging is that from the California Judges Association? Oh yeah, maybe that was a link from a link. Huh? Oh, they included us in one of their publications. Oh, they maybe included you. Okay, gotcha. I think so. I'm not sure if it's that one exactly, or I can look it up and give you the exact information later. I forget what the name of it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, because I was just thinking when I saw it, and um, this was a. A conference that was held uh, September 14th through 16th in 2018 is a guidebook of California courts, community outreach programs for judicial officers. Oh, um, okay, okay. Now I know what you're talking about. Yes, they included uh, a reference. They included a reference to our um, demonstration project. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was it was in a guidebook for innovative community programs that they mm -hmm. wanted the judiciary to know about. 
Okay, okay, yeah. Because I was just thinking about how your work um, has been, um, you've been sort of like, um, because I'm sure, you know, you're seen as a person who is like a peer um, because you're also in the legal profession and the judicial system is a legal, you know, legal realm. So, so you know, you have, you have, um, you have an audience that that hears you <laughs> in a way that um you know other people coming in that are not peers um are not heard and so um i was just thinking about how it's it's about your work is about changing attitudes and um and and at the conference that i went to in sacramento uh you know those wonderful people you had on the um on the panels you know people from uh corrections and people from the you know the political realm you know legislators were all looking talking about how you know they needed to open their minds and these people were open had their minds open and were willing to uh to uh to look at alternatives to incarceration and look mm-hmm. at alternatives to punishment right yeah, yeah, and that was really, really great, you know, if we look at it like a microcosm of, of a larger community. And I was really proud of the work that our Sacramento team did to put that event together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, as you mentioned, it was one of six forums that we held around the country, but we had a Republican and a Democrat uh, legislators. Um, we had people from the Corrections Department, Returned Citizens, talking about their evolution inside and outside. Um, it was it was very interesting, and we also broke up into working groups and came up with some recommendations, one of which is to fund programs in county jails. And so we're continuing to work on that theme. Um, but there were, I think there were over 100 people there. Um, Altogether, there were about seven or 800 people at these six forums around the country. Um, they were all very distinctive and had the flavor of the local environment. Uh, the one in New York was held at Columbia Law School. And Columbia Law School has been very involved in justice reform. I didn't know that. And so they brought a lot of interesting speakers and history to the table. The State Arts Council was very involved as well at the program in Columbia, the New York State Arts Council, and they continue to try to bring other organizations to the work. Uh, In New York, there's a great group called Rehabilitation Through the Arts, which works in state prisons in the New York City area mostly, and so they're trying to expand that work and get more funding from the state legislature. Um, So they're uh, using our model of how we advocated successfully for arts programs to be expanded in California. And so we continue to work with them. Um, We've been fortunate to get funding from the National Art for Justice Fund to do this work around the country, as well as the Andy Warhol Foundation. So it's been uh, great to have their support as well as a local funder, the Clinton Hancock Fund. Um, So, it's uh, it's uh, got some momentum and some traction. Our um, consultant in Georgia, we had a forum at the Emory University Law School in Atlanta, and out of that forum came a project that we are working with 
a consultant who is also uh, a consultant to the uh, Greater Atlanta Urban League, um, which uh, the Urban League of Greater Atlanta, and their project is to develop a system for pre-apprenticeships for people coming out who want to work in the film and music industry. So they're putting together some traction with leaders in those industries to develop some routes for people to get on board employment uh, with the film studios and um, music. Wow, that's really different. That's awesome. Isn't that interesting? So Beverly Joy will be speaking about that at our conference. Oh, Nice, nice. Wow, that's really different. That's awesome. It's a very concrete um, um, concept, and we hope it will bear fruit, that there will actually be some people uh, getting some free apprenticeship employment opportunities and job training. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. In a year, there will be some some slots available. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, if I can interrupt you for a second, uh, about the uh, um, the uh, conference in Sacramento. You know, we had we were treated to live a live music um, at the end. You know, while we were um, networking and you know, sort of wrapping up a wonderful day, we had this great music uh, performed by uh, by a ensemble of men who were all um, you know justice system impacted and. Uh, are now making their livings, you know, doing their their work, um, and they also knew each other from time spent in San Quentin, and so and they were awesome. Yes, and some of them were from Soledad and different places. They're mm-hmm. also going to be performing oh. at the conference at one of the. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of them live in South Bay area around Santa Cruz and San Jose. So, mm-hmm. they're homegrown talent. We're very proud of them. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. And we I also have um, a photography show by Peter Mertz, who has been photographing people inside and outside for mm-hmm. the last 10 years or so. And he recently was cited in the New York Times. He was in a show put on by Photoville in Los Angeles, and thousands of people came to see his pictures, which are just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Nice. So there are there are a lot of art aspects to this. We have a quilt maker who makes quilts who's going to bring those to the conference as well. Mm. Uh, we will also be looking at some organizations more intensely than we did in the past, mm-hmm. such as Mural Arts of Philadelphia, which has an incredible uh, menu of programs that include uh, people making murals in the community, um, they continue to teach inside and outside and have uh, school arts education programs. Um, it's an, a huge organization. And so we said, well, why don't, instead of having you talk on a panel for 10 minutes, why don't we just spend 90 minutes and learn more about all the things you do? And there will be people from all over the country. and It, it will really be fascinating. We're going to do another in-depth look at what's going on in Ohio because they sent several people to our conference in 2015 and went back and started doing much more work inside corrections Mm. and making more grants. And so the State Arts Council helped develop 
a service organization for artists who work in corrections. So they're coming in force, and we'll, we'll look at them, too, in an in-depth uh, workshop. It's going to be exciting. I'm yeah. glad you're coming, Wanda. Oh, me too. Me too. It's really going to be exciting. So, um, so how do um, how do people um, like who is the, who is the uh, conference for? Um, is it for just regular people that are interested in um, uh, arts and corrections, um, or um, yeah? So, who who are you looking to to um, to have you know at these at the conference? And I know you have a pre-conference. Which looked really interesting because it's it's um <clears throat> you know it's it's uh June twenty fourth you know through twenty eighth so it's gonna and it's all day I mean you've got things programmed for you know all of that time which I'm sure is not even enough to do everything that you might want to do <laughs> well and we're getting more ideas every day uh, well the way it breaks down Monday the twenty fourth is is set for California artists and arts organizations that work in the state prison system or want to work in the state prison system. So all the organizations, there are 17 actually, that have contracts from the state and many of those provide programs in multiple institutions plus four new organizations that are coming on board in July. We're trying to make it possible for them to come as well. So that's that's on Monday. We will be hearing from the State Arts Council Director, Ann Bound Crawford, as well as Kathy Allison, who's the Undersecretary of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Kathy was involved with us back in 2012 when we were setting up these demonstration projects under Dr. Brewster's leadership uh, with the William James Association as our main collaborator. And so um, it would be really exciting to see her again in her new role as Undersecretary of the Department. We also have an artist in residence for the first time, Jimmy Santiago Baca, who's a very well-known and prolific writer. Yes, I, I love him. I teach his, his writing and his story, you know, from the videos in my um, English classes. And I'm like, and oh, my God, I just love him. I remember when he got the Before Columbus Award and I have I have those those particular collections in my library. <laughs> oh, I am such a fan! Oh my God, he rocks! Oh my goodness! So he's going to be with us the entire week, and we're, oh. going, to, we're going to Alcatraz on Friday. He got so excited. He said he used to deliver food to Alcatraz or something like that. It, there, you know, he has a very um, interesting past, a lot of lot of different things, and so he has some connection to Alcatraz that he was excited about. So we're going to do some workshops at Alcatraz with, all right. Um, so Annie Buckley is is a force of nature, and she's going to be leading a workshop as well with some of her teachers, who are uh, people who are returned citizens and now they're teaching. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a very um, exciting week and. Jimmy Santiago Baca agreed to teach an art a poetry class as well oh, as a, nice. with a training program for teachers, and he's our keynote speaker on Tuesday. So people who would be interested in this are folks that are interested in um, re reforming the justice system through the arts. We're on a mission for sure because 
once you realize the talent that's locked up for way too long, you you think about how people could be making contributions if only they were outside. And Jimmy Santiago Baca is a perfect example of that. Um, if you read his memoir, um, A Place, what is it called? A Place of My Own? Mm-hmm. you know the book? Um, yeah, I, I know it. I think, I don't, I didn't read his memoir. I think I, I just read his collections of poetry. His poetry. Yeah, yeah. but I, but I've, I watched a lot of his videos where he talks about how poetry saved his life. And it's just amazing, you know, how when they, his, the inmates or the people who were incarcerated with him learned about his ability to write and he was like a scribe for other people, they were like, this is what you need to be doing. And it his was just, book, mm-hmm, his book is called A Place to Stand. Okay. A Place to Stand. And and he does write extensively about that process, but he also says he was illiterate when he went mm-hmm. to prison. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when you start writing, you start reading. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And so he became a profound writer, and he was just waking up every day to write by the end of his tenure in state prison. And uh, it was just a profound story, and of of redemption, and and how to have a meaningful life after being wasted. So I think you know we get the idea that the arts really offer this power to everybody, whether you're inside or outside, and mm-hmm. that we can all be more creative in how we live our lives, how we live with other people, how we can have a positive impact on the people around us. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about uh, Malcolm X and um, and and how, you know, he, he became literate, you know, in prison. <clears throat> and, and, you, and also, you know, you think about um, our ancestors like Frederick Douglass, who also talks about literacy and how important the written word is and, and you know, Again, we're looking at liberation and freedom. You know, whether that's a legal form of freedom, a legal form of of um, of, of um, a bondage. You know, which slavery was, and then we fast forward to this other legal form of bondage, which prisons are. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we look at how knowledge is such so, so powerful, and and literacy is you know and. But uh, you know, the, think about. Um, Michelle Alexander's book that made a profound impact on me. Mm, yeah, the new Jim Crow. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then think back to how our, we've been robbing our children um, by by reducing arts education in schools, mm-hmm. by not allowing expression, by not encouraging people to think, <laughs> and so. You know, this this whole business of testing people, and which is a way of dumbing them down, because everybody is not a multiple choice thinker. Yeah. And so when people start to feel like they're failing at that, then they give up. They easily give up, and it's a shame, because every child has something, some light that needs to be turned on, and so we're giving up on a lot of people and not giving them the opportunity, and then we sort of place them on that school to juvenile hall to prison pipeline, and pretty soon you've lost a huge chunk 
of of our next generation that ought to be out here working, contributing, paying taxes, voting, and uh, we have a lot of work to do to try to clean this up. But I do think the arts offer an answer. Mm-hmm. Not the, not the only answer, but an answer to helping keep kids in school, keeping them out of trouble, um, and helping folks turn their lives around. Mm. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, a lot of times, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, people don't know what their options are. Uh, if 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 all you have around you are, you have limited um, ideas around not the ideas, but limited examples of what's possible. Because a lot of times communities are isolated or cut off and 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 targeted. And so the only example that you have is something that's not necessarily productive or um um right. or or um or something that's uh life sustaining or legal even um because right. yeah yeah and even the schools you know depending on where you go to school don't offer these young people options like they don't know what they they can't dream outside of where they are because Mm-hmm. It's all locked up. Um, I'm sure you've heard men inside. I've heard this more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody will say, well, my brother was here, my uncle was here, my daddy was here. I knew I was coming here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it almost makes you cry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And and so, um, yeah, the connection between, you know, um, you know, free thinking and art um are are you know there, there's just so many examples if you think about people that were in the concentration camps you know you think about people now that are in some really dire circumstances but you know if they could if they could write a poem <laughs> or or you know draw a picture on a scrap of paper you think about Martin Luther King Jr. right he wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail on pieces of toilet tissue and they were smuggled out through his attorney like what wow <laughs> <laughs> like what <laughs> I mean, the power of, of art. To use, and it's a good way to use time, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and I think about my friend Robert King, you know, who made candy. <laughs> um, for those folks that were, you know, getting ready to make that final walk, you know, that, what do you call it, the walking dead? Mm-hmm. Getting ready to get executed at Angola State Prison. And so he would wow. make some candy, you know, the pralines. Um Oh, I didn't know yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why he called them freelings. Um, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, cooking is an art, culinary arts, right? For sure. <laughs> yeah. Actually, we did a seminar on that, um, the intellectual property of recipes and cookbooks. Oh, Sacramento nice. a few years ago. Um, it was like, well received. Yeah. Wow. And was I reading that you're honoring, you all are honoring some people? Um, uh, we are. We're having an event tomorrow night at the Sacramento uh, to honor um, Supervisor Phil Cerna, the Royal Chicano Air Force, which is an arts activist organization that's mm-hmm. been around for a number of decades, um, and some other folks who've been really important to our organization, like Daniel Yamshan, who's a great mediator. He works internationally. Um, and um, let me think, who else are we honoring? Um, 
sorry, I don't want to leave anybody out. You know, if you start on a list, you better name everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. Uh, who else are we honoring? Um, okay, let me start over. This is our annual Artistic License Awards um, mm -hmm. yeah. celebration, which we're having tomorrow in Sacramento. And we're honoring uh, Supervisor Phil Serna from Sacramento County. He's been a great art supporter. Uh, Dr. Sherry Meyer from Sac State. She was our host for our California Arts and Justice Forum in Sacramento. Oh, yeah, she was excellent. She was a yeah, very, very profound thinker and mm -hmm. educational leader. The Royal Chicano Air Force, which has been an arts activist group for some 50 years. Hmm. Um, Daniel Yamshan, who is an excellent mediator. He works internationally, as well as Buck Buskills, who is the director of the Sacramento Theater, the B Street Theater in Sacramento. So um, we're very excited about tomorrow's tributes to oh, these folks. Great. Yeah. So let people know how they can, um, you know, register for the conference, attend this awards uh, event in Sacramento, and and um, and I, I want to mention that that you all um, you do have scholarships and the information is on the website. And maybe you could let people know how they don't miss this wonderful event and also read. Um, you know some of these reports and um and uh find out more about about the organization um because your website is really comprehensive very very well um very well done oh thank you very much um i people can look at our website calawyersforthearts.org and they can see how to register for the conference how to um come to our awards event, which is tomorrow evening in Sacramento, and uh, how to get involved with other programs and services. We have a very extensive internship program at many of our offices around the state, hoping that law students like my younger self will be attracted to working at our organization and helping us with legal referrals, alternative dispute resolution, education programs, and advocacy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, anything else you want to um, mention? Uh, we didn't get through all of the various um, locations, you know, that um, that you uh, visited on the um, on the uh, in in the uh, the conferences. You know, through, uh, I forgot the name. I can't remember the name of. Okay. The Art for Justice Forum. Yeah, the Art for Justice Forum. Yeah, we didn't get a chance to talk about all of them, but hopefully this 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 conversation is is just one of of a of a several that we're going to be having now that we finally you know been able to like have this conversation. Get down to it. Yeah, thank you so much for including me. Um, I look forward to seeing you at the conference. I hope you get to interview some people from around the country. We got a lot of folks coming from Michigan, for example, mm. as a result of our Art for Justice Forum Super. at the University of Michigan back in April. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we're very excited to see 
things happening after those forums because sometimes you have a conference and you're not sure if it was effective. But I feel like we did make some some strides and develop some new alliances in some of the states. I can't say it was perfect, uh, but we did, I think, make a difference bringing different people together and having some really deep conversations about criminal justice and the arts. And always there were exciting people who had been um, involved in the arts when they were inside and they've come out and become our best ambassadors mm-hmm. for, for these programs because they know how much it made a difference in their lives. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, that's really, really great when um, people that are most affected are able to speak for themselves. And um, and I'm thinking about, um, you know, you're even going to have um, – uh, uh, see Norris Henderson, uh, voice of the experienced. Um, you know he's gonna be, um, you know, speaking as well. You know about the uh, the work that they did around, um, you know, getting people um, who were disenfranchised and not able to vote their vote back, and how how that really changed the outcome of the elections. Um, what year was that? Was that two thousand? That was 2018. Right, they, exactly. They yeah. had a huge vote in Louisiana that mm-hmm. Norris spearheaded, and he also worked with the folks in Florida. Right, who yes. were able to restore voting rights for ex-felons, and it's it's really being challenged by the Florida legislature. Their mm-hmm. power is a hard thing to give up. So, oh, yeah, yeah. People act like they own democracy, right? Like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> No, you don't. You do not own the democracy. No way. If they if they own it, it's gonna crash because <laughs> not include everybody. Mm-hmm. That was the idea, and it wasn't perfect, as Obama said. We're still trying to perfect it, mm-hmm. but we have to make sure that everybody can have an opportunity to vote. Um, Stacey Abrams has a wonderful piece in the New York Times today, actually, oh. about oh. Uh, combating voter suppression. Okay, I'll read that. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. Yeah. Well, great talking with you. Great speaking to you too, Alma. Bye. 
On a day like today, um, Abe Mado, and she is uh, also located in the San Francisco Bay Area, where our guest, uh, Cassidy Friedman, is also um, headquartered, as well as Eric Butler. Um, 
and they're going to talk about Circles, which is screening at SF Indie Doc Festival, which is beginning tonight. Yeah. Um, their screening is yeah. Saturday, May 1st, 2.30 at the Roxy. And do you have a screening on Monday, uh, Cassidy, uh, June 3rd at 9 as well? That's right, yeah. Okay, super, super. Yeah. Excellent. Well, congratulations on yet another film um, from your studio that has dedicated itself to telling stories that most of us are not checking out from the library. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might have to change our slogan because that one I think is even better than mine. <laughs> I'm actually in the yeah. library right now. That's <laughs> oh, oh, you're here too, Eric. Oh, super. Awesome. What library yeah. are you all at? The one at the school? <laughs> I'm at the one in Maryland. Oh, <laughs> oh Maryland. Oh, I'm in Maryland. Okay. Oh, so you all must have a screening there. We did last night. Uh, Eric, okay. Eric, this is this is this is this is why I made the film. This is the dream. Eric is touring the the world right now with the film, and the film mm-hmm. is kind of meant to be the spark for the conversation that he facilitates. And so mm-hmm. he was just uh, he was just at AFI Theater last night um, mm-hmm. with like a hundred educators from Montgomery Public Schools. And um, mm-hmm. got a chance to talk to them about restorative practices and, and the film, and just unpack all these important lessons. Right on. Mhm. Wow, that is so awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, you know, for making this film to talk about you know one of our heroes, um, Eric Butler. You're, you yeah. know, you're just really living the work, right? Um, I mean, seriously. Um, I mean. You know, yeah. working through um, the the pain that you know, like the suffering in your body, and and how the system is also impacting you know you as a father, and then all of these children that are now your children um, because of the work you do, you know, in Oakland right. Public Schools at this this school, Ralph Bunch School, which is um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know it really well. I raised my children mm-hmm. in West Oakland, and I'm I'm also That's New Orleans cool. native, so it's like. Okay, I, yeah, I, I know exactly where the Desire Projects are <laughs> in the Ninth Ward, right Lower Ninth Ward. All right, mm-hmm. right Warden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for our audience um, that doesn't know uh, what Circles is about, maybe the two of you all could, you know, share, like, sort of what the story is and, and how you came to to make this film. Yeah, yeah, so um, I'll, I'll start. Um, so Circles is a film that is a character-driven verite film, which means it's, it's observational. It's not interview-based. There's, there's no interviews. And the film follows Eric's life from a survivor of Hurricane Katrina to moving to Oakland with his son, Trey. And um, he gets hired at a school, of a high, at Ralph Bunch's school that you mentioned, the high school's last resort which is kind of like the school district's last stop before they, they wash their hands of you. Um, and so it, it's a school where all the students have already been, had purely negative experiences within the school district. And um, Eric takes this, this school, you know, with the help of the uh, restorative practices um, and, and, a, and a support of a principal, um, he's able to take what's one of the lowest performing schools in, in the school district, 
and turn it into one where they're graduating their students and they're not suspending or expelling anymore. And he had, it had this massive impact at a time when people were saying, what's this new thing, restorative justice, which is sitting in circle and intentional conversations and listening to each other. And, um, and adults really kind of like removing their mask as adults and showing up as people. And that's what Eric does, and he has this, this profound impact and kind of demonstrates to the world that this work works. And while he's doing this work, his own son, Trey, who at this time is now 16, gets arrested for a crime he did not commit and is beaten in jail. And the story follows this, this incredible educator's journey, not only to save the lives of the children that he's working with in the schools, but to also save his own child. Um, to, to add to that, the, the most miraculous thing about um, the story is actually not seen in the, in the story. It's how restorative justice mm. works. Um, Cassidy is a um, is an extreme example of how um, of how to actually um, uh, how do you how do you bring restorative justice to a school? How do you um, how do you bring restorative justice to an organization or anywhere. Um, the story behind the story is Cassidy wanted to really do a, a documentary about something that he felt so passionate about after doing a um, after doing a promotional video. And I, I'd act, Cassidy had asked me, "Would I be mind if he followed me around and, and do a documentary?" And, and I said, "No, um, absolutely not." Um, but but Cassidy. Um, he kept he kept going on. I didn't I don't think that he even cared at this point. At this point, I I think and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Cassidy. I think that he still wanted to do a documentary, but I think that we had developed a friendship that was deeper than just what the work was. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So there was there was a time where um where we're we're building this relationship and um and then and we're really getting to know each other. Um, we're starting to like Cassidy, right? And um, mm-hmm. and I asked him, what's the what's the one thing that he's most ashamed of? And um, and he told me. Um, I was surprised to um, to have him first of all share um, something so deep. Um, and I was surprised at that secret that he told me. <laughs> um, but afterwards, I said, um, if you if you really want to do this documentary, you'd have to share that story with uh, with the rest of the students in circle. Um, I didn't think that he would, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I didn't think that, that I would either. <laughs> well, from that, he was able to develop some close, um, deep relationships with the students. And after that, he didn't need my permission anymore. The students were in relationships with him, and he trusted him. So um, it was like seamlessly for him to be able to come in with a camera and um, and video uh, these uh He's touching and inspiring stories. Um, of course, he had to explain to them what this angle was, and he did, and um, the kids trusted him, and um, his vision has, has really been put out there for the world to see. Like, you can really see what Cassidy was thinking when he decided to um, do this documentary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and I, and just, to, just to tag on to that, I think that the film at some point, once we decided to really do it, it became an extension of the work that Eric was doing. And, and rather than be like, in spite of the camera that's following us around, 
he would say, and this camera here is going gonna, is gonna to record everything that we say. So as adults, if we don't follow through on the, thing, on the promises that we make, you can go back to the tape and say, but you said back on this date that you would support me and how have you supported me? And so it became like a public record of um, all the commitments that the adults make. And it felt like the film and, and the work at some point kind of merged into one. And it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't like one was sort of tacked onto the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then we're not part of the circle, and everyone, like these young people, their stories are now in the public domain. I was like, wow, how did you get them right. to agree to that, to share these intimate moments, you know, that are... Mm-hmm sort of surrounded by and embraced by love because, you know, definitely we can see that um, as we watch um, the film, you know, sort of being like a participant in the circle but not a a voiced participant. I mean, it's just like some of the things these children have suffered is like, oh, my goodness. And, 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 you know, if it it wasn't the kind of situation, you know, that they are embraced, you know, circles are, are such that, you know, wherever you turn, there's somebody there, right? So you don't ever feel mm-hmm. isolated or alone because you are always in this embrace, this this tangible embrace. Um, but, you know, like the, the girl who talks about how she's always angry, and then we find out that her brother was killed the year before, and right. she's never been able mm-hmm. to process that. So, okay, there's reasons. Mm-hmm. And then I love the way mm-hmm. you, um, Eric, um, apologize for all of the mm-hmm. uh, the accusations and the um, uh, just sort of the um, the prejudice and and stereotyping that these young people have experienced prior to arriving at Ralph Bunch. And then you think about the name Ralph Bunch, right? You think about this particular ancestor and what he stood for, you know, as a social worker, politician. I mean, you know. So anyway, was there a question in there? I think there was. Oh yeah. <laughs> about these children sharing their stories with a larger audience. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I think that it's I think that it's freeing and and liberating. Um, and and one good mm. example um, I have of that is um, Trey, my son, who's um, yes. who's featured in the documentary um, in in a huge way and, and and had to uncover himself. Um, and 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 an introvert in a lot of ways. Um, we brought him out to the um, to the film festival in um, in Canada, and it was our um, it was hot docs, and it was the um, the uh, the premiere of the film. And um, he, he sat in the audience, and um, we did a thing afterwards where we um, talked to the audience. We had a Q and A. Um, and when the folks found out that Trey was there, he had gotten an mm-hmm. ovation. That was, I mean, we, me and Cassie had gotten really, really good ovations and people clapped. Um, they gave him a thunderous round of applause, and it seemed like it would last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see Trey's face um, <laughs> recreating itself from this this thing where he thinks that he, he has to look a certain way to not being able to contain himself and his feelings and, and breaking out into this huge smile. It's only made the people clap more, um, and I, 
he, there was a there was a validation that Trey got in the moment when when he got locked up and nobody was here and listened to his dad and, and he couldn't get out of jail. He got beat up in jail and got kicked mm-hmm. out of school so many times and and never was heard. To that day, can honestly say that he was validated and everybody in that room heard him. Um, and it's the same thing I think for um, the rest of the participants that are in the um, in the in the movie, even myself. Um, there's mm-hmm. times when I don't feel heard, and um, this movie has definitely, um, at the very least, got people to sit down long enough to hear my story. Um, and it, it's up to me after that. Um, I, I, my story isn't assumed. It's, it's asked for. So um, I think Trey gets that. Mercedes Mercedes gets that. Um, so that's the reason that that's that's the um, that's the prize that they get. Um, I think that the reason why they did it was as simple as trust. Um, who do you trust enough to um, to tell all your information? Um, in this intimate way and have them broadcasted all over the world. Um, and, and Cassidy made himself available in that way. And we and we made sure to, um, you know, at all the main characters in the film had an opportunity before anybody else, before the film was released to the public, to have a private viewing of the film. And, and we, we really designed those to make sure that there was – total comfort and a lot of time after this the watching the film to to unpack and to kind of decompress and to like you know because it 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 takes a minute to even like have the feelings come up for you of like how does it feel to see yourself in this film how you shared that intimate detail and circle and how does it feel similarly or differently to now have this on on a go up on a big screen and and so that was really a key piece. And for everybody the, that, that's in the film, the question was, you know, this film doesn't get seen by anybody if you're not okay with it. And um, everybody, Eric, Trey, um, Mercedes, Miss Steele, they, they, all, they all were, you know, felt like the film was accurate and, um, and they were excited to have the film get out there. And then the, the, the greatest parts, just like Eric said, have been the positive reception that, that they get and the vindication for Trey and um, people, the, the people in the film feeling like they're being viewed as full people and not being judged for the lowest moment in their life, which is what a circle does. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. You have a couple of um, question comments. I was wondering if um, for those people that aren't aware of um, what restorative justice practices are? Maybe um, uh, Eric, you could give us um, a little short um, definition of that and explain, you know, the concept. Sure. Uh, I really like it that, um, you know, children are not suspended. You know, they don't get kicked right. out of school to go wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I know um, I know Fanya Davis, and and I know that Oakland Public Schools has adopted. Um, uh, our joy, restorative justice for youth, for our youth um, practices for all of the schools, um, and and that's really an awesome concept. Um, and um, I was also thinking, um, and, and I don't know if you'll be able to hold all these 
question, comments. Uh, so if, if you don't, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm jotting them down. But when um, okay. when Trey is, borrows a phone and, and then the person whose phone he borrowed goes out into the middle of the street and cries rape, uh, well, cries his his phone is still. Alive. I'm just thinking. I'm just sort of flashing <laughs> <laughs> on on you know all those all those you know women you know in the South white women who mm-hmm. uh, instead of owning the relationship cry rape when it's challenged, mm-hmm. or how right. how the default is black man white woman or you know rape. Um, you know that that the person that the black person the, the black man in this case is guilty of some crime and and then third thing was that wonderful video footage of of you and Ted Kwan it's like oh my god and when you went to Alabama <laughs> and and you talk about juxtaposing you know New Orleans you know where people would get arrested if they didn't have a job or if they were just standing on a corner and then you think about um what happened you know in Selma Alabama you know, the first time when everybody was, people were like were mowed down, and then the next time, and 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 you you make some uh, some analogies between 1960 and 1980. So, so those are the three yeah. comments. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, let me see if I got them. Um, so that that's the title of the words uh, of, of the the title circles. Um, it's not about sitting down in a circle. It's actually about the circle of life, how how things mm-hmm. happened in the '60s that repeat themselves now. Um, when you were mm-hmm. when you were um, asking this question, I couldn't help but think of um, the um, the film um, "A Birth of a Nation," um, where mm-hmm. um, where there's where there's these black men being depicted as beasts and um and and how they're um how it's a good idea for society to stay away from these men because they're inherently um bad people. Um Trey did not borrow this man's phone. In fact Trey was charged with attempted strong arm robbery, which means Trey acts to borrow his phone. This guy said no. And this guy thought that Trey was going to rob him. So he began to scream out, please don't rob me. And the assumption to the other folks that was around was this this has to be true because the same thing that we see every day on television is happening. Um, a poor, innocent white man is um, being assaulted by this young boy. Um, so um, that 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 happens in our communities more often than not. Um, I was I'm proud of the fact that it's depicted in the film, and that way you can have a conversation about it. Um, mm-hmm. Who else? I'm next. Let me see what else you. <laughs> what else did you ask? Was two more. Things. What is restorative justice? All right. Mm-hmm. So restorative justice. Um, you know how when you, when you talk about restorative justice. They're, they're talking about a victim and an offender and having intentional conversations, um, the community coming together to um, solve these conflicts. Um, so you get the idea that restorative justice is really about solving conflicts um, because that's all they show us. But what restorative justice really is is a way of finding out what our common value system is and then figuring out a way to use our values to get the things that we need from our community. Um, circles, 
It's just a byproduct of what restorative justice is. Not suspending is the thing that happens if you practice building intentional relationships. It's kind of like um, having kids. Um, um, it 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 it'll it take a lot for you to kick your son out of the house. You know, if your son is just is, is just late coming in, you're not going to kick him out of the house. Restorative justice kind of does the same thing. We have intentional conversations. We find out um, what harm was caused. And how do we as a community use our values to um, to help with that home? So, and it's the very last thing that restorative justice does. The first thing and the most lasting thing is building the relationships. So the short answer is finding out what our value system is and using our values to, to get the things that we need from our community. And there was one more. <laughs> Ted Kwan. <laughs> Uncle Ted. All right. Uncle Ted. Uh, Uncle Ted. Um, Uncle Ted. Um, is to me, Uncle Ted is the main character in the um, in the film. He yeah. sets in the center of the circle. He kind of um, he guides the circle. He explains yeah. to us the um, the way the circle works. The way. Um, um, the way he taught me how to have patience, and um, that has been instilled in me in how I give that to the rest of the world. Um, and another thing that's not in the film is every, almost every, well, every single person that I know in my age um, range that worked with Uncle Ted as a kid is doing some type of um, positive work in the community. We have doctors and lawyers and um, the uh, Me Too movement representatives. <laughs> um, so we have a lot of um, heavy hitters, just people that work with Uncle Ted. So um, without um, the influence of an Uncle Ted, um, I, I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing right now without having access to be able to go to the marches in Selma, Alabama and the uh, the, the reenactment of the Bloody Sunday March. Um, I knew about that stuff at a really, really early age. So I had the privilege of having an Uncle Ted in my life to um, to show me the in, in, importance of, of of fighting back and resisting and and, um, and being an activist. Um, so, yep, I think that's all three hands. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And um Cassidy, I wanted I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about um uh how this film fits in with um uh sort of your 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 mission and vision for for your company and and also um you know mention your producer uh, Becca uh Vershbo, um you know also your mm-hmm. your uh, your wife and and that yeah. you are, you know, based in Alamo Square in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Um so so it um th- this this uh the, the the type of storytelling that circles represents which is going going deep into stories about um where we as a society um I think have the most room to improve which is in um the way that we understand each other, the way that we communicate with each other, 
And, um, and here in the Bay Area, it's the perfect place to be doing this work because we're at the, the heart and the center of where the, the technology is just taking off. And, um, and the pace of technological development is there's a new startup here every day and some new, um, some new uh, technological advancement every day. But if you look at the quality of our communication, the way that we relate to each other, at the, at the very best, it's stagnating. And, and in my opinion, it's getting worse by the day. Um, and, and social media and this whole world of, of you know, cell phones and computers and, um, and toxic masculinity, and I can name a thousand other things that are coming in the way of us just showing up as people with each other. And, and this is sort of like where my, my heart is. You know, I grew up in um, – my mom was a, a therapist and my dad is a mediator. And so the things that I was raised with around the dinner table – I just kind of took for granted until I, I grew up and saw that almost nobody else was getting those same things that I was getting, the sort of the, the daily check-ins, um, talking uh, about feelings um, and not being afraid of, of talking about feelings as, in particular as men. And so when I'm, when I'm out there in the world telling stories like Circles, my goal is to is to shine a light on people who are doing what we just as humans is built into our instincts to do, and we and we move so far away from. And mm-hmm. so, um, with my wife Becca Firstbow, who is the impact producer, who's an amazing educator and does this work in San Francisco schools every day herself, um, we mm-hmm. are envisioning a production company that specializes in in telling these kinds of stories and really tries to spark the types of conversations that we see aren't happening enough. And, and, and just getting to talk with you right now, this is, this is the end game is, is having conversations with you and Eric about, about, um, uh, about, about why it is that we, we've, we've lost this art of communication and what we can do to rebuild it. Wow. Yeah. And and I, um, I know our time is drawing to a close. And so um, I was wondering, um, Eric, if you could tell us um, sort of um, sort of what in your life has prepared you to do the work that you do and, and where do you find the inner fortitude um, to be able to keep doing this work and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and for whom do you do the work? I, I, think, um, I think being human gives us these human instincts. And, and I think that it's not just me. It's, 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 it's most of us. Um, mm-hmm. I think the privilege that I have is access. Um, the, the privilege that I have is community. Um, I, I mean, I know, I know Fanya Davis. Fanya Davis is like a mother to me, which means Angela Davis is like an aunt to me. So um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by people. And Uncle Ted... I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm surrounded <laughs> by people that kind of sparks this flame for me all the time and hold me accountable and remind me of what my mission is. Um, I do this work for um, for us, for, for you and me, and for our kids to, to one day be able to, um, to live in a world where, 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 where racism um, is, is being talked about and not ignored. 
a, a, a place where, where women voices are being heard. And, um, and, and we're always striving to, to reach that place of equity. Um, and with, with the understanding that it's going to take a lot of work and, um, and it's a continuum and we're not there yet. What's the, what the idea that we're always, almost always not there yet? And, um, mm-hmm. and to, to get other people on board, man, if, 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 if I can reach three people and they can reach three people, we can, we can have um, a large part of the world covered. So um, if, if, if we can make the world a better place through the work that we're doing, it's all been worth. Um, all of the tears and the, and the bringing the speakers' voices home and um, and, and and that's it. That's all. I just wanna I wanna make sure that that Cassidy's brand new baby is like who is like two weeks old. I I want him to I want him to grow up and have black friends and and then be able to teach other people how to how to be together um, as um, as black and white men and black and white women. Mm. And him to teach white people, I love it because it's like my little nephew now, <laughs> um, and I want him to be able to grow up and, and 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 teach people how how to be. And and if if Cassidy and I can be that example, oh man, we've done so much work just through our kids. So um, yeah, man, man. I, I'm getting chills just talking about that. So I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, yeah, that's awesome. And 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 Chastity, um um what's your hope um for um for this particular work and um and 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 sort of what has, you know, prepared you and how do you sustain, you know, the kind of artistry that you do in in the work of making films and telling stories? Well, uh, you know, the sustainability thing is like it depends on what day you catch me. Um, <laughs> it's this, this is this documentary filmmaking business, and, and you could probably interview any filmmaker showing up um, at uh, SF Doc Fest this week, and they'll tell you that you know here they are and they're walking the red carpet and they're achieving the success and people are applauding them, but getting to here was <laughs> just brutally unfair and hard and, and not financially compensated. And you have to – they're all a bit crazy. We're like, we're, we are all a bit crazy to do this. And I live in San Francisco, the most expensive city on earth. So so the, 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 the commitment to the work is something that feels like it's tested on a daily basis. And um, – but the thing is, is, is that it – satisfies me so much and nothing else does um, in, in the same way. And so there right now in this, in this moment, you're catching me at sort of uh, at, at this incredible point in, in my career and in my life where like we, we put in this work, we were in the trenches. We started filming in 2012. Um, we filmed for years and years. We edited for about a year and a half. And all this kind of took place in a cave, you know, outside of the public view. And then we exploded onto the stage at the at the biggest and best documentary film festival in in North America. And um, and ever since our world premiere at Hot Docs back in April, 
um, it's just been this upward this upward mission where um, every single screening has more people in it, and it feels like we're penetrating the mainstream. Like restorative justice, even a couple of years ago, like it, it wasn't something that people talked about, wasn't something that people even knew about. And now, uh, you know, starting just about a month ago, the Redemption Project started to air right. um, on CNN, which gets, you know, I think a, a half million views. And, um, and it's focusing on restorative justice circles, the victim offender meetings. And so what we're doing right now is, is you know, I, I'm playing a, a small but important part in moving this thing, restorative practices and all the, 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 the principles and philosophy around it into the mainstream so it's not just a thing that um, exists. Um, you know, in, in, in people like Eric's heart, but it's something that's getting out into the world, and we're, and we're doing that. And so that's really, that's really exciting for me um, and, and satisfying, <laughs> even if, you know, it's, um, it's a tough business to sustain. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Well, congratulations on, on this wonderful work and uh and so is everyone gonna be at the um uh the Bay Area premiere uh Saturday, June first at two thirty at the Roxy in San Francisco? Oh yeah. I have I have one more stop and I'll be there literally the night before. <laughs> yeah. Saturday. So I'll be there Friday. And I'll get there I'll be there Saturday, but I'll get there on Friday. Right, um, super, depending super. on the Bay Area's weather to get me some good sleep once I get there. Um, <laughs> and I'll see you guys mm-hmm. there. Awesome, awesome. And and will will you all also um uh be in the uh, in the house on Monday, June third at nine? Will will um uh Yeah. Would you be there, Eric and, and uh Cassidy, will you be there as well as uh, members of the uh, I don't know Cassidy. Will I be there? I haven't looked at my schedule that far. <laughs> we're we're trying we're trying to work on Eric's schedule to make sure he can be there, but I'll definitely be there. Okay, yeah. And Eric, are you still at, at um uh, Ralph Lunch? No, no. I'm, I'm I'm primarily doing um trainings and and, mm-hmm. and circles and supporting circle movie. Uh, um, mm-hmm. I am connected with. Um, with the uh, school, um, mm-hmm. where they get free training from me all the time, <laughs> <laughs> and I have a relationship with Miss Steele, who's who, by the way, is retiring this year. Um, oh, she is. Oh, yep. okay. Yes. Yeah, it's just really wonderful. Um, you know the way she's also lifted up because you know without administrative support, you know these these innovations don't 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 have, you know, they aren't sustained and they, you know, and don't have success. And and she, so she's a woman with vision, which is really awesome. And she also loves the children and she loves you and all of her people. It's, just, it's really like a, a community there, a village, as people say too much oh, yeah. about things being villages. Yeah. I mean, you all really do have one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. Like a village. And and I'm so I'm so glad you said that because she Miss Steele, the principal at Ralph Lunch, she's the invisible hand in every scene. Mm-hmm. Because without without a, a leadership that's willing to go to bat for you, Eric Eric can't be Eric in the schools. I mean, they would they would fire him on the first day um, because mm-hmm. what he's doing is so subversive to the way that we've been doing things. 
And um, mm-hmm. so Miss Steele went to the mat every day. She boxed out a space where Eric could be Eric um, in the school. And, and so much of his success is, is credited to her. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and we're, you know, and that's why Miss Steele will be at, at the screening on June 1st, too. And um, oh, nice. there's, nothing, there's nothing more exciting than getting to tip our hat to her and say, this is what you created, Miss Steele. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, safe travels to both of you, and congratulations on right the on. wonderful work. Which I'm sure, you know, it's, it's a tool. I mean, people can use this, um, you know, um, in their in their work um, as an example of um, of practices that that are successful, and because uh, you know, here's the evidence. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah and, really, and, really and, it's, and 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 we're. And that's been something that we've been able to, you know, just to add on to that. That's something we're taking this film and Eric's message and his work, and he's training tech companies, um, you know, um, and, and, and we're going into schools. We're training DA's offices and, and judges. Um, there's, no, there's no place where restorative justice isn't relevant um, and, and where what Eric's teaching isn't relevant. Anywhere there's a community. It, it's where it's needed. And so this has been really exciting to see the way that we're able to kind of, like you said, take this tool and bring it out into the world and share it with mm-hmm. right. <laughs> All right. You take good care. Look forward to seeing you at the Rocks. All, right. All right. I'll see you there. Peace All right. Okay. See you there. Right. Peace and blessings. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. So we are going to close with, um, I mentioned, um, the uh, San Francisco International Arts Festival. Um, and uh, as I scroll to it, <laughs> see, um, San Francisco International Arts Festival, uh, we're going to play uh a little bit of Nova Lima while I get down to that. I'm going to play um, uh, Coba Coba Libertad for Freedom.
Committed to Memory, the Art of the Slave Ship Icon. And again, she's going to be in conversation with a good friend of hers at the Museum of the African Diaspora tomorrow, which is Thursday. I think it's 6.30. You should check the website, get your ticket in advance, because the salons are really a popular popular program there. And, uh, and the exhibits there presently are, are really awesome. Hopefully you were able to make some of the parties, opening parties last week and the week before. Um, but the exhibits are up through early August, so that's awesome. Um, let's see what else I want to mention. Uh, oh, um, at Joyce Gordon Gallery, presently there is an exhibit, uh, No Mas or No More, and it's looking at um, uh, violence against women, sexual violence specifically, uh, not specifically, but sexual violence, domestic violence specifically. And uh, it's up through, I believe, the 31st, and features the work of uh, M.G. Uh, 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 Trout and um, 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 Mary Gallagher Trout, and um, as well as um, Pamela Santos from Brazil. And the work is really awesome. Um, it's just really beautiful. And Joyce Gordon Gallery is open Wednesday through Sunday, I think. <laughs> anyway, George Gordon Gallery is, is uh, located at 406 14th Street in downtown Oakland. And uh, you definitely don't want to miss this wonderful work. It is fantastic. So I'm um, going to play uh, this. Um, I was thinking about maybe playing the interview with uh, Abdul Kenyatta, who has the uh, storytelling. Um, is it called storytelling? 
Um, he's having a storytelling cafe. I'm not certain if that's the right language for it, but it's um, it's at nine o'clock on Friday, the thirty first, and all of the events for um, San Francisco International Arts Festival are at Fort Mason Center. They are a partner this year, which is awesome, really awesome. And, um, yeah, so uh, we're trying to play Abdul Kenyatta or Andrew Woods. Andrew Woods, I first broadcast that particular interview, I think, on the 17th. Um, And some of the events that he mentions have already happened. So I think I'm going to broadcast the Abdul Kenyatta uh, conversation, which was about an hour long. It's really interesting. This man has done a whole lot. Uh, you might know him as a poet. He's an award-winning poet, and he's also a published author. He has lots of books, and you can get them on his website, which he will tell you where it is because um, I don't have it right in front of me. But, yeah, so we're going to play Abdul Kenyatta's interview because I haven't played it yet, and I might we might not be able to get through it all. It was about an hour. We just went all over the place <laughs> in the conversation because I just found talking to him so interesting. All righty. So. Oh, and also I want to wish um, everyone who is fasting um, during the uh, Holy Month of Ramadan a blessed, uh, a blessed fast and a wonderful Eid uh, next week. How are you? I'm blessed. How are you, my sister? I'm fine. I'm fine. Assalamu alaikum. Waalaikum salam. Yeah, Ramadan Mubarak. I beg your pardon? I said Ramadan Mubarak. Uh, if oh. you're, yeah. Blessings. Yeah, blessings. So, um, wow, I'm going to read your bio first, and then I want you to tell us about the Speakeasy Story Series, which is happening um, Friday, May 31st, um, 9, 9 p.m. as a part of the... Uh, San Francisco International Arts Festival. It sounds like it's going to be awesome because you are a fabulous storyteller. Thank you so much. No problem. Yeah. So El Abdul Kenyatta has performed as a workshop facilitator and motivational speaker. He is a poet, storyteller, jazz and blues vocalist and novelist. He was an actor with the San Francisco Neighborhood Arts Children's Theater for five years. Um, let's see. Um, San Francisco State University Black Studies Department associate. Oh, you, um, you are or you were associate professor um, at San Francisco State Black, in the San Francisco State University Black Studies Department. That was yes, back in the eighties. Uh, okay, okay, and at that time you lectured on African and African American history and literature, and Correct. your novel is Five Thousand Urgently Pointless Distractions. And it was published in 2000. Um, you are the 2005 Berkeley Poetry Festival Slam Poetry Champion. Uh, you were a member of the Oakland 2004 National Slam Team and the 2006 San Francisco Slam Master and the 2007 Marin County Fair Slam Poetry Champion and a member of the 2007 San Francisco National Slam Team. Uh, you appeared in Jamie DeWolf's film, Moat. <laughs> so welcome again. And wow, the spoken word is like really integral uh, into, you know, the philosophical um, way that you present yourself in the world, like with words. So talk about um, the speakeasy 
and the storytelling series that you are bringing to the San Francisco International Film, San Francisco International Arts Festival. Is this um, a first time, um, or have you been a part of the festival before? This is my first time uh, in the festival. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, this is my second time in the festival because I performed mm-hmm. in the festival last year. Okay. Um, but this is a special occasion to mark the Speakeasy Series inaugural San Francisco event. Mm-hmm. And um, what we have is we have ten of the best storytellers that I could find. Ooh. And instead of giving them a theme, which is generally what happens in storytelling competitions, mm-hmm. I asked each storyteller to bring their favorite, their best, most audience-pleasing story. Mm. So we've got a wide range of people. I think we've got just about every every ethnic diversity you can think of and every age group you can think of. Mm. We have a Hari Sangvi. And Harry's won the moth several times. Mm-hmm. Um, there's myself. There's uh, Steve Budd. Steve Budd has a one-man show um, that plays around the Bay Area. We have Ann Bundy, and this is going to be Ann's first time on stage. Mm-hmm. We have Serene Wurasakira, and I ran into her about a month and a half ago, and I heard her on stage, and I said, you have got to be in this show. <laughs> and then we have Kevin Whittingill, and he runs a show called Epic Fails, mm-hmm. and that is a, a really great show that um, takes place generally in San Francisco. We also have Jeff Hansen, and Jeff Hansen appears at the Moth quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, Corey Hansen, who actually is MC at the Moth. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, Justina Wu, and we have Jamie DeWolf, who uh, runs the Taurus Without Regrets show. Hmm. So we've got a, a, a wide array of storytellers, and we have a wide array of stories, and we have a wide array of, of uh, ethnic backgrounds. Oh, wow. This sounds like it's going to be so exciting. So when you mention um, the moth, uh, could you maybe talk to our audience about it? Because um, people might not be aware of the moth um, series um, at Freight and Savage and then also on it's, I think it's broadcast on KQED, right? Right. Now, the the Moth has, uh, in the Bay Area, two shows. Okay. One in San Francisco each month and um, one in Berkeley each month. Oh, where in San Francisco? Jeez, uh, I can't recall. I know where it is, but I can't call the name of the street right offhand. Okay. I can look um, No problem. But it's uh, right off of Mission Street, downtown San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. So, um... Uh, could you tell our audience a little bit about, like, the moth? I think these stories have to be, they have to be true stories. Um, right. In the moth, you have to have a true story. It's a five-minute story. Mm. Um, you have a, a time limit. So if you go over your time limit, uh, they give you some kind of a gong or a bell or something to let you know you've gone over time. I think what's different about our show, what's special about our show is that instead of putting the performer in a box, Mm-hmm. and telling them what we want them to speak about, we want them to come and just give us that best story, the one that they like the most, the one that they get the best response from audiences with. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. So what have you prepared um, for uh, for the speakeasy? Well, myself, I've got several stories, and, and I'm, I'm trying to hide 
which one I'm going to perform that night. <laughs> um, I have a, a story that I might do, uh, which is about sweet potato pie. Mm. And, and how sweet potato pie has helped me to gain things in life that I never thought that I would get. It's my favorite food in the world. Mm. And so I was uh, just expostulating about it, and I was thinking about some of the things that occurred to me, occurred for me because of it, including one time being on an airplane uh, traveling from uh, coast to coast, and the stewardess came up to me and said, I know you didn't just bring one piece of sweet potato pie on this plane. <laughs> And I just happened to have a whole pie. So we had a great time. And, and I was making a connecting flight, which we were late for. Mm-hmm. She held the plane and gave me first-class accommodation. Whoa, for real? For real, my sister. Wow. So that, that I might tell that story, or, or I may tell one of the many others. Um, there's the uh, story that I tell sometimes about my great aunt who used to take me to all the baseball games. Mm. And so when I was a kid growing up, um, if you were an African-American interested in baseball, then your team was the Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm -hmm. So we'd get on the subway from Harlem, we'd go see the Brooklyn Dodgers all the time. And my great aunt was saying how she actually knew Jackie Robinson and and, Mm. uh, some of these other players. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know if she really did or not, but I did know that, that her husband... My uncle mm-hmm. had played in the Negro Baseball League, mm. but as he liked to tell the story, is that he's played every position except pitcher, but his real value to the team was the fact that he was a first-class mechanic and he could fix that bus. <laughs> oh, so, wow. Yeah, so I mean, and so I, don't, I haven't deci- decided which story I'm going to tell yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was asking some of the other storytellers to choose the one that they thought would be best for me to tell. Okay. So, but I've got uh, hundreds of stories. Mm. Um, I've been telling stories. Uh, I just did a show at Stageworks last week, and mm. I've been at the Moth a few times, um, and uh, I'm going to be at the uh, library in Oakland, I think that's Sunday the 25th with Avacha. Okay. And... Um, uh, and then the, the the day before our show, there's going to be a free show in San Francisco. Um, and what is that? I think it's 446 Valencia Street at 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been keeping pretty busy. Yeah, yeah. So how do people keep up with you? I mean, I know they're going to be able to see you, um, you know, facilitate this wonderful Speakeasy Storyteller Series. Um with other great storytellers that they can also um, follow after they meet them, you know, through their work um, uh, on Friday, May 31st. But how do people keep track of where you're going to be showing up, you know, with your stories and your poetry even? Are you still doing poetry too? I do a little poetry every now and again. Um, in fact, I actually fold poetry a lot of times into my stories. Mm-hmm. So you you may actually hear a story that includes a poem that you've heard 10 or 15 years ago. <laughs> nice, nice, yeah. So do you have a website or something? Uh, how do people well, I, stay in touch with uh, you? Mm-hmm. On Facebook, we have the Speakeasy Storyteller Series, which is a page. Okay. Then there's my page, Abdul Kenyatta. Mm-hmm. And um, then I have a website, that is ADD. Productions 
dot net. Okay. And and do like for instance, if if a person uh, goes to ab add productions um, dot net, will that cover everything, or do you have to also do the the Facebook um, speakeasy and the Facebook with your name? The Facebook speakeasy tells you what's going on with speakeasy storytellers. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good place to go. Okay. Um, ADD Productions mm -hmm. is basically about selling product. Oh. So it's about uh, selling my books. Okay. Um, and um, I've got uh, uh, a new book out, oh. and it's called um, Everything I Ever Needed to Know I Learned Back in the Day. <laughs> I like the title. Yeah, I just had, as a working title, it's just back in the day. Mm -hmm. So the stories that I have been telling in the last year mostly have come from that book. Oh, oh, that's great. So people can come if they if they read your book, um, they could like have favorites, huh? Yes, hopefully, hopefully oh. people have favorites. Yeah, is it is it like you know when you go to a concert? Can you can you make a request? Can you tell this one? <laughs> you know, every now and again we'll find ourselves in a situation where we're able to actually accommodate requests uh, from the audience. Uh -huh. uh, actually, myself, I don't have a problem. If the audience member requests something, more likely than not, I will perform it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great. Are you going to have your books with you that evening and, and other um, other uh, storytellers, are they going to, if they have product, are they going to be able to... Um, sell their their collections uh, afterwards if they have something like that? Well, I've, I've asked everyone to bring whatever product they have that they would like to sell. And um, hopefully we're going to have, it looks like we're going to have a table where people can sell their merchandise. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, nice photos so on, on your website. I mean, on your, um, yeah, very, very nice. Looks like everybody has just really enjoyed the stories that were told. <laughs> that, that, you know, that's what we hope. That's what we're always hoping is that people come out and that they will enjoy the stories and they'll have something that they can take back with them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Super. And I'm um, wondering, um, in closing, if you could maybe uh, maybe talk a little bit uh, about, you know, sort of this, this whole thing around storytelling and, and being human and, and what happens you know, in a story? Well, you know, basically, storytelling is, is one of the oldest forms of communication that we have. And people have been telling stories around campfires for years and years. I think one of the things that inspired me the most is that when I was teaching uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, once a week we used to have these big, I guess you could call it a party, and the drummers would drum, and people would come, and we would go to Brewer's Beach. We would sit out on Brewer's Beach, and you'd have the young people, and you'd have the old people, and, you know, people would dance, and you'd always hear some sisters relating uh, throughout the crowd. Um, and then people would tell stories. Now, generally, those stories were Anansi stories. Mm. And uh, Anansi stories are the stories that were named after Anansi the spider. And most people may not be familiar with that, but uh, the stories actually were named after Niyame, the sky god, and Anansi went to the sky god and asked if he could have the stories named for him, 
And the sky god said, in order for you to do that, you have to perform these three tasks. So Anansi agreed to form to perform the three tasks. One was he had to, to capture a boa constrictor. Another was he had to capture a nest of hornets. And the last was that he had to uh, capture a tiger. So Anansi, the trickster spider, was able to trick these animals into aiding him, and he took them back and turned them into the sky god, and that's how the Anansi stories got their name. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's a great story, too. And in Anansi, the spider, um, uh, sort of in, in the New World um, iteration, uh, is, is Burr Rabbit, um, you know, the trickster. Um, and, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I, I understand that there, there was that relationship mm-hmm. between the spider and mm-hmm. the rabbit, mm-hmm. but I really didn't realize that until I was living in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And I was hearing the Anansi stories, and then it triggered for me some of the uh, Br'er Rabbit stories. Mm-hmm. Right. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see how these relate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, how long were you um, living in the Caribbean? Um, I was only there for about three years. Okay, what took you there? Um, actually, I became a school teacher, uh, an elementary school teacher at St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Oh, how nice. Like, that's so cool. Like, you applied to teach, and, and, the, and the assignment was in the U.S. Virgin Islands at St. Thomas? Like, really? No. Actually, what happened is that um, I got stranded in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find a job because my Spanish wasn't good enough. Oh. And the closest place where people spoke English was St. Thomas and the Virgin Islands. Oh. So I, I took a plane. I went to St. Thomas and the Virgin Islands. <laughs> and I lucked up. Uh, on my first day, I went to the employment agency, and I got a job as a, a proofreader for the newspaper. Mm, nice. And then I put in my application to become a school teacher, and uh, then I became a school teacher. Wow. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Well, that's really, really neat. So you're um, you're from from New York? I'm originally from Harlem, yes. Oh, from Harlem. Okay, not mm-hmm. just New York, but Harlem. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up on 118th Street and Lenox Avenue, mm. uh, about two blocks away from uh, the mosque uh, where Malcolm X preached. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. As, as a teenager, we used to, well, I mean, even before I was a teenager, we used to see Malcolm speaking on the corners all the time. Really? Oh, yeah. He'd be on the corner of 116th Street or the corner of 125th and Lenox outside of the subway station mm-hmm. next to the newsstand. Um, and, and you'd go out and you'd hear him. So my father got paid on Fridays. So on Fridays, I would go meet my father mm-hmm. after he got home from work. Right. And um, <laughs> I'd stand there and I'd be listening to Malcolm X until my father came up out of the subway station. And you'd be surprised at how many people coming home from work, mm. leaving the subway station, would stop and listen to Malcolm. Mm. You know, and you know, it, was, it was so amazing for me, um, particularly after Malcolm came back from Mecca, when uh, he had a broader program of human rights and not just one of uh, civil rights and separation. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just think about... Um, uh, you know, Hassan Leek, whose birthday is coming up on Sunday, you know, the 19th. 
yes. and and in the the, uh, the year this being the year of return, uh, you know Ghana extending uh, the invitation to people in the African diaspora to come home, and uh, and so a lot of people are making their their journey to the motherland, some for the first time, and uh, you know sort of thinking about you know Ghana as the first nation to get its um, its independence from British rule and um, and and President Nkrumah's, uh, you know, wanting to to establish, you know, uh, a I guess open the conversation and the discourse to, uh, and, you know, sort of having a United States of Africa and and having, you know, and not forgetting, you know, the Pan African aspect of this United States and you know sort of establishing with others the. Uh, uh, the organization of African unity, and then Malcolm X's, um, the uh, what was his called the um, organization of Afro-American unity. Right, exactly, exactly. And then his his parents being Garveyites, and <laughs> you know all of that, and and 2020 being the uh, centennial of of the the meeting in Madison Square Garden where um, Marcus Garvey was um, elected the uh, provisional president for the United States of Africa. And, and and then how that that newspaper that came out of UNIA was like it was like the the uh, the quilt you know how it had it was you know our, the quilt that our ancestors put messages in it was like that quilt the way it was circulated in the African countries and also in the diaspora like Cuba and Jamaica and other places you know just so like that drum. <laughs> well, you know I, I'm I'm hearing you at the same time I'm remembering growing up. And having my great grandfather and his best friend mm. Methuselah mm-hmm. up at the the still, they had a still uh, in in Virginia on this hill, a mountain, I guess I, it was a mountain. And uh, they came from different philosophies, and so Methuselah believed that uh, black people, Africans in America, needed to demonstrate to white people that uh, we deserve equality and that, that we deserve to be treated fairly. Uh, and he was a member of NAACP. And so um, we actually considered them to be accommodationists, whereas uh, my great-grandfather was a Garveyite, and he was saying, you know, that which we do not do for self will not be done. We can't sit around waiting for other people to help us out. If we want to help ourselves, we need to help ourselves. Mm-hmm. So the two of them would, would, would sit and have their arguments back and forth, you know, one calling W.E.B. Du Bois a fool and the other one calling Marcus Garvey a fool. But uh, basically they were both talking about the same thing without recognizing that they were being divided by by small issues. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, you know, sort of like what, what came down with um, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, when he ended up, you know, um, living in, um, Ghana. in Ghana, uh, and then, you know, and then his passport being revoked <laughs> and, and then, and then it's sort of like, you know, and, you know, Ghana being the place where in Independence Square, you know, there's the black star and President Nkrumah loving, you know, Marcus Garvey and loving Du Bois. And so I think, Finally, you know, when it came down to it, there was no there was no division between the visions of these two great men. Oh, I, 
you know, actually, I, I thought that, that there was uh, uh, a pretty large division. No, I'm talking and about. I, I'm talking about by the time that the boys ended up in Ghana. Oh, I think, yeah. I think it all shook out. No, no, yeah, there was. Oh, there was. Uh, I mean, we're talking that that seventy year period of time mm-hmm. before he before he got to Ghana. Yeah, that part. There, yeah. There was, there, yeah, there was there were a lot a lot of strange things that went down. Mm-hmm. But you know, I really appreciate the fact that he was able to encapsulate um, his history for us and and give us an opportunity to recognize that yes, Bobby was right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mhm. Yeah. 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 And it's- he still is. He sure is. He sure is. He sure is. Um, yeah, and it's just really, really unfortunate the way that, you know, he he died. You know, um, first he was killed in the media, and then he actually died. Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I'm, I have theories on that also because um, Garvey died from, we're talking about Garvey? Yeah, Marcus Garvey, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, he died from a heart attack. I think he was about 54 years old. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, and we know how much the government agencies here hated him. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if we look at that trial, then we recognize that that, that, that was a kangaroo court. Mm-hmm. Um, evidence was never presented uh, to prove anything. Um, there was an envelope that they said contained the names of some people who would uh, um, say that Garvey did things, but they never opened the envelope. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest problem that, that Marcus Garvey really had with the whole trial was that he determined that he was intelligent enough to represent okay. himself. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that was that was the only big mistake I know of that I can think of that uh, Marcus made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then you know in in the sort of administration of of the uh, of the UNIA, which um, which is you know a, a government you know um, within you know a nation this nation, um, he he had people um, hire he hired people to do things that they didn't have the expertise on, like for instance you know the person who bought the ships didn't know about shipping. you know, sort of caught up in, in, in you know, in uh, in the philosophies and um, and uh, trauma of whiteness because when 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 uh, Garvey wanted to um, to relocate um, or not relocate because you know he was always talking you know back to Africa because Africa is our home and I'm thinking I think it was was it Liberia? It was Liberia. Yeah, he and, had and, the deal and, to set yeah. up universities in Liberia. Mm-hmm. He had the deal to buy the land in Liberia. Yeah. And Firestone, mm-hmm. the American rubber company, mm-hmm. said, look, we'll give you this great deal. The only thing you have to do is not allow Garvey here. Right, right. Yeah, and they went for it. They went for all of the negative, um, you know, uh, slander that um, that these, you know, these institutions were were – Keeping on on the UNIA, and they even wanted to charge him before they did that. 
they charge Garvey one price and charge the colonizers another, another price. price. Yes. Yeah. And me to the point, yeah. I think they said, you can have it and pay us later. Like, what? Right. That's basically what they did. They, they just let the colonizers come in and, and take over things without having to put up any uh, money in front. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, whereas they actually took money from the Garveyites that they never returned. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, what we really need to understand, I think, in that is that uh, when people are appealed to from a capitalistic perspective, we have to recognize that in capitalism there are no morals and no ethics. There's only capital. Mm-hmm. And so these people were looking at uh, capital gain rather than looking at the ethics or morals of what they were doing. What they saw was hard cash coming in. And, and they were greedy, and they jumped at the money. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, 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 so true, so true, yeah. So, wow, wow. So this is really great, the way you taught in the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, in St. Thomas. And, and then after that, where else did you go back? Did you travel anymore in the diaspora teaching? Well, you know, um, um, I've been to uh, Ethiopia, Ghana, oh. Senegal, yeah. South Africa, Tanzania, mm-hmm. uh, did I say Senegal? Um, mm-hmm. And um, so in the last few years, I've made uh, about three trips. Oh, this is usually You just did oh, yeah. oh. Yeah, uh, I yeah. just got back from Ethiopia about, well, I guess it's, um, it's last November. Okay. November, December. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I was there, I believe, the year before. I also went to South Africa on that trip. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Ghana, but I figured, like, you know, I've been there. I spent so much time there. I need to see some other places mm-hmm. and do some other things. So I, I really enjoyed uh, South Africa a great deal. Mm-hmm. I think the thing, though, that, that sticks with you the most, like, the first time I realized it was in Senegal. Mm-hmm. And um, I walked out of this fabulously gorgeous hotel that they put us in. We, we were bringing um, uh, medical supplies and educational supplies, mm-hmm. and they put us up in this fabulous hotel, the government did, mm-hmm. and I'm walking out on the street, and as I walk down the street, I nobody is really noticing me. Okay, <laughs> There are no women clutching their purses to their chests. Mm-hmm. There are no police officers who, who are looking at me as though I obviously must have committed a crime. Uh-huh. I was actually walking down the street being a human being. Mm-hmm. I was no longer a black person. I was just a human being. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to have the opportunity to know what it feels like to be a human being, something mm-hmm. that we will never know in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, Marvin X's daughter, um, Mohamedia, she, um, she lives in... Um, uh, in uh, Ligon, um, right off, right, right uh, in the same town that the uh, University of Ghana is located, the first one, in, uh, and uh, and she uh, wants to raise her daughter there in uh, uh, in in Ghana because you're right, she said, you know, for all of the problems maybe that might uh, they might have, uh, you know, an African nation might have, it's not it's not the same thing around being criminalized because you're a black person. Like, that is not one of the problems. <laughs> if, I get stopped, if I get shot by the police in any of the 
African countries I named, it won't be because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. In America, it will be because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And I remember when I was uh <laughs> when when I was in Senegal, uh, my 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 family is in Rufus. And and so uh the children would say, you know, just so people would know which person that they come oh, the American. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm an American when I'm not an American, right? When I'm an American, I'm not an American. <laughs> That's kind of the way I feel too, you know, and and you know, people Almost every place I go, I look like the people there. Yeah. So, you know, people generally think I'm I'm a member of their community, mm -hmm. and that is just so great. But yeah. I do remember in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. I walked up to this young soldier who was outside the bank. They they guard all the banks, uh -huh. and and his gun looked like it was bigger than him. Mm. And I said, "Man, that gun looks like it's bigger than you." And we both had a good laugh. You know, now can you imagine me going up to a police officer in the United States of America and telling him that, that his gun is too big for him? No. <laughs> no, you know, not at all. Not at all. my obituary. Right, because, you know, you think about that young woman who was pregnant um, just recently who um, was being assaulted by, by this policeman, and she asked him, like, why are you doing this to me? And then she said, I'm pregnant. And then, and then he shot her five times and killed her. I'm like, what? She just asked the question, and and then she's dead. So, well, yeah. But mm -hmm. you know that you are not permitted to challenge the authority mm -hmm. of uh, immigrant Europeans in America. Mm -hmm. And any time that you challenge the authority of immigrant Europeans in America, then you're going to find yourself um, with a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to find that system looking at you as being negative. So that uh, if you were walking down the street and you got knocked in the head and you complained to the, to the, to the police, you might be the person who gets arrested. Because mm -hmm. the police arrest people who look like us. You know, the, the brother was, was going from his porch to the back of his house. And the police officer stopped him and said that he looked suspicious. Mm -hmm. He said, I look suspicious. He said, this is my house. Mm -hmm. The police officer said, show me some identification. And the brother said, wait a minute. What crime have I committed? What what penal code are you trying to arrest me for? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, the, the immigrant European police officer was just demanding that um, he show him some identification. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you don't have to show your identification unless you've been accused of or have been seen participating in a crime. You know, the way our situation is in the United States of America, a lot of times it might be to your best advantage to just show them your ID. Yeah, if you have it on you, but it's sometimes like, how many of us walk with our ID like you walk out the house to throw your trash away, right? Or to move the garbage into the front of, of to the curb, or to go right. get something out your car. Right. You don't like, I mean, you don't expect to need your ID, so it might be in the house. Right. Are you going to be able to make it back to the house to get it? <laughs> no, you can't. You know, you can't. You're being detained. You know, if you're being detained, you can't go anywhere. You know, and, and they can't tell you many times why you're being detained. Right, yeah. And, and, and while I'm saying all of this, let me also make the point that I am a retired state peace officer. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh. Hmm. Yes. So, you know, 
very well love um, because I had a propensity for saying things like, yo, yo, excuse me, now you can't call him a nigga. Alright, so if you call him a nigga again, then you're going to force me to have to report the fact that I told you that you can't do it and that you did it again. So, you know, you need to know that you're, you can't handle him like that. He's already in cups. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, they didn't think that I was supportive, and I wasn't mm-hmm. supportive of their tactics and methods. Mm. Wow, wow. So you really have, you've done a whole lot. Goodness I've goodness. been I've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate. Yeah, so I presume that, you know, you decided you wanted to, to be a, a, a peace officer because we need to be everywhere. You know, actually, to be truthful, Wanda, I never wanted to be a peace officer. Um, and um, when my brother was released from prison, he went to the parole office. And um, my mother went with him, which is kind of not the, the smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. But he was only like 19 years old, so she went with him. And every time a parole officer asked my brother a question, my mother answered it. So the parole agent put my mother out of the office. On her way out of the office, she saw a sign that said, you can be a parole agent. So she copied down the information and called me up and she said, you don't know what it's like with these people in this parole office. You have to become a parole agent. Mm. And so eventually that's what happened. But I think probably an even greater influence than that was the night that – I was walking to the bus stop. My wife uh, was at uh, UC Berkeley Mm -hmm. uh, studying uh, for a master's in library science. Mm -hmm. And I was on my way to meet her. So we had two kids at the time, two sons, and they were both in bed. And I had to make it from from, uh, Oak Street down to Haight Street to meet my wife, and I would walk her back home Mm -hmm. because it was like 9.30 at night. Mm On my way there, I was stopped by two police officers from thrown up against the wall, mm. uh, and, you know, treated really poorly. Um, and then when they found out that I wasn't wanted for anything, they, they laughed and let me go. Um, I found out within the next couple of days that that was the beginning of the harassment that we received from the zebra killer murders. Oh, yeah, wow. And so I don't know if you remember, but Mayor Aliota said, mm-hmm. okay, all black men in the city of San Francisco are going to be stopped. Oh, no, I didn't know that, but I, I grew up in the Nation of Islam, and I remember the zebra trials. Okay, and and so not only were we stopped, but if, if you were stopped and you were cleared, then you were given a, a, zebra, a zebra card. What? So, yes, yes, you had to have a pass card. You had a zebra card. And and so if you got stopped again, you could whip out your zebra card and show it to the police officers, and they were supposed to stop harassing you at that point. You had to carry passes, and it was a zebra? Like, how insulting. Okay. Now, what happened was that, you know, we, 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 we fought that, mm-hmm. and they, they, had, they stopped that. I'm thinking it only lasted about a week, but they, they stopped thousands of African-American men mm-hmm. during that period of time. Mm. Um also, a lot of people aren't aware that the people who caught the zebra killers mm-hmm. um, were two African-American, um, uh, Rotea Gifford and uh, uh, Earl Sanders, mm-hmm. who later became our police chief in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. 
those were the guys who broke that case. Mm-hmm. Those were the guys who went into the community and talked to the community and found out what was going on. And that's how they broke the case and arrested those guys. Hmm. Now, when they were put in charge of, of the operation, mm-hmm. and this is, is, is in the newspapers if you want to go back and just read it. Yeah. The, um, the immigrant European um, police officers or, or white police officers said that they would give no backup to uh, Sanford, Sanders and Gifford. What? They said that in the newspaper. That that wasn't like you know uh, something that was hidden. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, Earl Sanders was one of the people that that originally brought that suit a couple of years before the zebra killings. It was talking about the discrimination in the, in the San Francisco Police Department. Mm-hmm. And he also they they started the Officers for Justice. Oh, okay, that organization that um, is in Bayview. Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And so, when I became a uh, parole agent, one of the first things I did was join Officers for Justice. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. So, what part of your career was that? Like, was that, were you still, were you teaching at San Francisco State yet? No, or had you already? Actually, what happened was that um, I thought I had a really good job. I was a mental health counselor at West Side Lodge. Mm-hmm. And um, I had just been appointed uh, supervisor of the midnight shift. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I couldn't ask for anything more. Um, but I kept getting these letters telling me that um, I had passed the test to become a parole agent. Oh. <laughs> and I really didn't want to be a parole agent, so I didn't read the letters. And then my mother would occasionally say, do you hear anything from them? You know, so you can't lie to your mother. So I had to tell her that, uh, so the next letter I got, I actually <laughs> read it. Uh-huh. Okay, now, let me explain. The salary that I was making as a supervisor at West Side Lodge mm-hmm. was $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. The starting salary for a state of California parole agent at that time was $3,600. Wow, big difference. Uh, I had a wife and um, I think just two. I had, did I have three kids then. Yeah, I had a wife and three kids. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know thirty six thousand. I mean, what, what, I mean thirty six hundred a month over a thousand a month. What was I going to do? I made the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it was one of the primary reasons that I said, "Whoa, I didn't know they made that much money." <laughs> And and I think it was less than two years later. By that time, uh, parole agents were making at least five thousand a month. Wow. I mean, five thousand. What is it? Yeah, five thousand a month. Mhm. Yeah. So, so when when did you um, leave that and, and and start teaching? And were you were you doing your art the whole time, like writing, yeah, doing poetry, I was writing telling and stories? Mhm. Doing that, all of that all the time. Okay. When. When I retired from um, the uh, state parole, mm-hmm. I been working. I began working for um, oh, I can't remember the brother's name, but um, I never remember his first name was Fred. But at the uh, San Francisco Juvenile Probation, okay, mm-hmm. because I was thinking that I needed to catch these brothers earlier. You know that that I needed to try to have an influence in their life before. They went to prison. Mm-hmm. So 
um, I, I started working with juvenile probation. Mm -hmm. I ran the uh, Young Men as Fathers program for them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was that before? Because um, I know they have something similar, um, you know, in Alameda County. Um, was that before this program over here, or is this one an extension of yours, the one in East Bay? I, I don't know, uh, because I know for, there was a statewide program. Okay. Um, for, uh, and I was the uh, executive director of, of the uh, one in San Francisco. Okay. Yeah, I think that's really good, because uh, a lot of times um, you know, people don't do well because they don't know better. Um, and so, and it's not like you're born knowing how to be a parent <laughs> at all. Well, uh, I also want to say that the most important thing about me mm -hmm. is the fact that um, I have uh, nine grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. Wow. Wow, nine grands and three great, huh? Yes. <laughs> That's yes. awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Yes. Wait a minute. I have to move the phone back a little bit. I think my chest is expanding too much. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. So so when did you when did you have time to like teach at San Francisco State? And and what are your when did you go to school to get all this expertise in all these different areas that you are you have worked in? I mean, mental health counseling and um, you know, sort of teaching young people how to be better be parents and, you know, the um well, a lot of that came He's from the marriage, office. family, and child counseling experience at San Francisco State. Oh, uh-huh. Um, so um, when, when, once I got into that program, mm -hmm. I, I realized, I mean, I, I knew I wanted to be a, a family counselor. Okay. Um, but once I got into that program, it was a time when state parole said that they were looking for people with backgrounds in mental health. Mm -hmm, right. Okay, so um, I, I was uh, in. I, I was what they call a high service agent. Mm -hmm. So all of my my um, clients had committed very serious crimes, murders, and mm. rapes, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you're familiar with Larry Singleton, the guy who cut the girls' arms off years ago. No, uh huh. Yeah, Larry Singleton. Uh, um, went out and he cut this girl's arms off and Moran and left her to die. Mm -hmm. um, and she was discovered and she lived and they, they so they brought him to trial. Mm -hmm. But in those days, with the sentencing requirements that they had, he was only given seven years. Mm. When he got out of prison, they tried to find a place for him to live, but uh, there was no community that would accept him. Mm -hmm. So the parole department would put him in various uh, residences, mm -hmm. um, and then the community would find out, and they would surround the residence, and he'd have to get out. So what they did was eventually they decided that they would give him a trailer mm. on the grounds of San Quentin, oh. and and two 24-hour-a-day parole agents to guard him. Mm -hmm. um, so he lived uh, under those circumstances for about a year. And uh, when his parole was over, he paroled to Florida, mm -hmm. where um, he proceeded to murder another woman. What? Yes. Yes. He went to Florida and murdered another woman under very similar circumstances. Hmm. So 
but the other young the person you know who's had she lived she lives she's still alive now yes so so he he actually killed this this other woman but, but, yeah, but he, he was trying to kill. He was oh. trying to kill the first one. Yes, but he was unsuccessful. Right. But the the second one, he he managed to kill her. Okay. Now there's speculation that I've read in in newspapers and online mm-hmm. that that he was a serial killer and and that he that there were there were other people mm-hmm. that he murdered. Uh-huh. But uh, I lived with the man for a year, and I you know I I don't know anything about that other stuff. But I do know that he he murdered that woman in Florida. What do you mean you live with this man? Like when he was um, uh, on the San Quentin uh, grounds, you were one of the. Um... I was one of the twenty-four hour guards. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I, I lived. Well, I mean, I lived. We we were in a trailer, and he was in a trailer next to the trailer that we were in. Okay. Huh. So I I call that living with him. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he had free access to come over to our trailer anytime he wanted to, mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff. Although he didn't do much of that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah. So, so you know mm-hmm. that that from the when the zebra murders occurred, we had a, a big community meeting at the African American Historical and Cultural Society. Okay. And while we were at that meeting, when we got to the meeting. The, the killers had already been found. Okay. All right. So, but we had the meeting anyhow, and so we had this meeting, and we were saying the white man this and the white man that and the white man the other. And then somebody, I think it was Brother Yakini, but I'm not sure. He stood up and said, "You know, we should start our own schools." And I was like, "Yeah, I'm second that motion." So that's how we started the Al Haj Malik El Shabazz uh, um, Elementary School. Um, and and then we also, uh, my friend Tabidium Teruzi started the Pan-African People's Organization School. So I taught at both of those schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, where is the El-Haj Malik El-Shabazz School? Is it still around? No, I think they closed about, oh, it might be almost a decade ago. Yeah. Now, I mean, you know, my children are, are all adults. Mm-hmm. And they went and, there? And, Yes, and they have their they have their own children now. Mm-hmm. So it's been a while. Okay. The Pan African People Organization School is still is going strong in Oakland. Where is that school? I can't recall a location offhand. Like I said, it's been a long time since I've had a little one who's had to, to attend school. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, yeah mm-hmm. I, they're they're still going strong. I I talk to Diabetes from time to time. And um, he says their school is still going strong. And oh, students. oh, is that Tabidi? Uh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. I know which school you're talking about. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So um, I was the vice principal at the, the school in San Francisco. Oh wow, wow. Uh, um, and then I taught at the Al Malik Al Shabazz School, which when we opened it, we called it the Malcolm X School. Okay. Oh wow. That's great. Yeah, because now, you know, they have, you know, all these charter schools, um, which, um, you know, which get funding from the state. And I uh, just thinking, you know, a school like this, I mean, it would it would be independent if it got money from the state, but um, but there's well, a lot. See, that, the main thing for us with regard to educating our children mm-hmm. is that we not have anybody telling us, how to educate our children. 
is that everything that we have, they have taken and basically bastardized. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So I'm looking at Back in the Day and uh, Black Mama is Gumbo on, on the website. So I'm going to, uh, yeah, and then the fans of Zanzibar. Zanzibar was really wonderful. Did you, when you were in Tanzania, did you go to Zanzibar too? I um, actually am a part owner in a, a little small really? guest house really? um, in Zanzibar. Oh, which one? Um, with Davidi in Tambuzi. Oh. I, I've been there. That's the one that's on the beach, right? Oh, yes. Yes, I yeah. stayed there. Yeah, I stayed oh. Yeah, it was really lovely, particularly early morning, you know, when the cows are walking on the beach and the women and children are, and maybe adults, men, are um, are harvesting the seaweed. And I'm like, wow, you never you never hear about seaweed from Africa, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't know about it until I was there. Yeah, yeah, and 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 our sister, um, she passed. Um, Upesi. Upesi, yeah, I ran into Upesi. It was so funny because she really helped me on my first East Africa trip. Like she told me sort of what to pack, and because um, I I stayed, I went to um, I stayed with um, Mama C and and Baba uh, M C Pete. But but I also stayed, you know, at at the the, uh, the guest house, and so she told me like where to go. Like I also did a tour. I went to uh, La Libella and to Gondor and to um, uh, to the uh, place where the blue and the white now meet, and um, and and of course did all of you know Ethiopia, like all the different sites and temples and places, mosques and all those places, and then there were these special places where she knew people, and so she gave me their names and their numbers, and they hooked me up. <laughs> yep, yep. But I ran, in, yep. I ran into a page, it was so funny. I was flying, where was I going? I was flying to, um, I think I was going to Tanzania. I don't remember exactly where I was going, because um, I went to the film festival, the uh, um, uh, the Dow uh, Film Festival, because um, Mama C, there was a film uh, that she that was uh, about her that was being screened there, so I went to the festival with her. But I ran into Opeisi at the airport. I was um, at Ethiopia Airlines and I was walking, and I saw her, and I'm like, Opeisi, whoa! And she was going to Dar, and um, and we chatted for a minute before I heard my my flight being called. But it was so cool. <laughs> yeah, Davidi and I met up in Dar. I think he's getting ready to leave again soon. Um, the year before last, we hooked up in Dar, mm-hmm. um, and then we went. When then I met him again um, at the guest house mm-hmm. in uh, Zanzibar. Mm-hmm. Now, when I go to Zanzibar, uh-huh. I sit on the porch. Mm. That's that's it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I I write. Mm-hmm. You know, I do a lot of writing while I'm there. Uh-huh. Mostly I sit on the porch. And it was so great the last time I was there because it rained for like four days and night. Mm-hmm. The rain just poured down. Mm-hmm. So I just sit on the porch during the day and, and look at the rain. Mm, nice. It, yeah. was, it, it was just so calming, mm-hmm. soothing. Yeah. 
and those women that um, you know they have that in the organization you know where they 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 make products you know purses and and dresses and because I remember when Opacey you know she bring things to sell here um, from there and so it was really cool being able to meet the women who were doing the work um, you know making this you craft. Know, Opacey and Tabidi started that process of cleaning the beaches. Yeah. And turning those uh, that plastic right. into useful items. Uh-huh. Um, but fortunately, since then, those items have been banned. What? Oh yeah, right. That's good. Yes. Yeah, that's really good. There's too many, like all those black plastic bags. It's just like crazy. Like when you when you're like in Senegal, like Dakar, and the bigger oh, yeah. cities, you just see like they just cover everything. You just think, oh my goodness, the poor sea life, right? And even animals. Swallowing those 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 bags. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's yes. that's really good. It's been banned. That's that's excellent. Wow, wow. So that's your guest house too, because when I was there, nobody was there, so I had it all to myself. Oh, I know that feeling. <laughs> oh, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, it was off season, so it was so cool, and and the nice sister would come and bring me a meal, and then the hotel was like way up yonder, right? And then this really nice man would come and he would be on the porch all night while I slept. Felt so protected, right? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow, wow. That man can talk. That man can talk. I can't understand half of what he's saying, <laughs> but that man can talk. He'll just sit there and talk like I'm understanding everything he's saying. He's speaking in sweet Kiswahili. And, mm-hmm. You know, he'll have a couple words in English, and I'm like, yes, mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> yeah, wow, wow. Well, this has been such a lovely conversation. Oh, my yeah. goodness. And I'm really looking forward to the speakeasy and catching up with you at some of the other locations. When I saw your name, I was like, oh, wow, Brother Abdul Kenyatta. Like, I haven't I haven't been in a space with you in it in a long time. It's been a while. Last time we were at the, the library in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. Been, been a while. Well, you know, our poetry celebration is coming up our 30th annual this coming February. So definitely want want you to put it in your schedule. It's February 1st, um, 1 to 4, and um, and I'd love, love for you to come and, and, and bless us on our 30th anniversary celebration of, of this, this particular um, program that's the longest-running program in the Oakland Public Library system. Well, you just let me know when mm-hmm. you need me to be there, and I will be there. Okay, super, super. Awesome. Well, you take good care. Have a wonderful rest of the day. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for this great conversation, and I will let you know where it's going to show up. All right. Well, be blessed. <laughs> All right. Peace and blessings. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was um, Abdul Kenyatta, and, um, again, he is going to be having um, the spoken word speakeasy on Friday, this Friday the 31st at 9 p.m. in the chapel um, at the Fort, Morris, Fort Mason Center, and you can get tickets by going to SF International Arts Festival or sfiaf.org and get tickets. Um, it's 120 minutes with intermission, so it should be really nice um, considering all the great storytellers that are going to be in the house. They should be telling their their favorite stories. So it be really, really awesome. 
And um, this is also, this Friday night is also the uh, artist reception and kickoff for the Sacramento um, Book Black Book Festival. And uh, that's going to be really awesome as well. So, um, yeah, you are not going to be um, at a loss for things to do this weekend. Um, Saturday uh, is also, um, is it Saturday or Sunday? <laughs> um, uh, there's also going to be, again, the um, uh, the San Francisco Indie Documentary Film Festival is also kicking off again tonight. And... Um, and they're going to have like awesome, awesome, awesome films from tonight through the 13th, which is a Thursday. And Circles, whom uh, we were speaking about earlier today, is uh, going to be debuting on Saturday as well. So you won't be able to be in Sacramento and uh, at the screening of Circles at the same time. Circles is screening at 2.30 p.m. So... Wow, you got some choices to make. <laughs> but they're all, you can't go wrong, that's for sure. So I'm going to close with uh, another piece by McLeet. This one, McLeet and Quinn. And uh, and we're going to play, um, uh, gosh, Bring It Home to Me. If you ever your mind about leaving, leaving me behind. Oh, bring it to me, bring your sweet loving, bring it on home to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know I love. Thank you. 
Yeah. 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 Yeah.